0: Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And may we be people who continually strive to be your representatives here on earth, to bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Say this with me. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I want to ask you a question. What makes you hungry? What makes you hungry? I'm going to throw up a couple images and see if any of this makes you hungry. Does this make you hungry? Yeah, okay. Does this make you hungry? hungry. And for some of you, this is kind of a lame exercise. Like, I don't care what you throw up on that screen. I'm just going to be hungry. Does this make you hungry? This picture makes me hungry all the time. This is Ethiopian food. If you're unfamiliar, there's a beautiful restaurant down in San Jose. This is beautiful uh, organic Ethiopian restaurant, Telegraph, in Oklahoma, Oklahoma Oakland, in Oakland that's uh, too far away. Does this make you hungry? Some of you are like, no, I'm kind of good on the carbs, don't want to do the... T- does this make you hungry? And just to make sure that I'm covering all of my bases, does this make you hungry? Okay, just, just want to make sure that there's, there's, there's full uh, representation. So <clears throat> when we talk about this phrase, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, I'm going to be talking a little bit about hunger and thirst as one combined essential idea or concept and just like these images these images when they're thrown up when you see different types of food or when you go by a billboard and the reason why advertising is so effective is because they throw up an image of gooey goodness slow motion with nice lighting in front of the screen and something about that image something about these pictures will cause a hunger to grow up within you. And that's the whole point of advertising, which is why we're all suckers, and we're all going to go to the restaurant as soon as we see the advertisement. Hunger, fundamentally, if we're just going to launch out here, equals a sense of desire. And it is a desire for a world that exists, but yet we are not currently experiencing. So I'm going to start off with one fundamental definition or idea that hunger is essentially a desire, a yearning for something that truly, really exists in this world, but yet we, right now, in our state of hunger, are not experiencing. And that is why we are hungry. There's something there, and I want it, but I don't have it right now. That concept was uh, illuminated, elucidated, written about by C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity. Now, this is just the end quote, but he talks about how desire seems to be an argument for the existence of a thing. So, for example, if you are hungry, that is ex- an example or that is evidence that there is such a thing as food. If you are thirsty, That is evidence that there's such a thing as water. If you have sexual desires, that means that there's such a thing as sex. And then he closes that argument by saying, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And he uses this idea to say that if we are hungering for something or desiring something that seems to be transcendent out of this world, metaphysical, not just the physical world, but something above and beyond that, then that must be evidence or an explanation for the real existence of that world and that you were made for that world. So when we get to this beatitude that says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness— I'm going to suggest that one of the first things that we have to understand is that this word hungry is uh, defined as this sense of desire, this sense of yearning, this sense of longing, craving, and almost, in a sense, reaching or aching for something. Now, what I'm going to do is kind of take the two bookends of this beatitude and run right to the word, for they will be filled, and tie it together with the word in the middle, righteousness. Some of you got that filled. Get it? But um, sh- Okay, great. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, dot, 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 for they will be filled. Now, the word filled there is the word cortazo. It just simply means to be filled. But it also means to have an abundance or to be overflowing. Some definitions of this word mean to be content or to be satisfied. Philippians 4.2, some of you know this passage that uh, Paul talks about. I have learned how to be content and satisfied in all things, whether I have plenty or whether I don't, whether I'm in jail, whether I'm free. And then he says at the very end of this, which is what gets put on the bumper sticker, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, in that passage, he says, I've learned the secret of being cortazzo, which means to be content or to be satisfied. I know what it is to have that sense of, ah, however you want to define that. Cortazo means that I have actually taken in, consumed something, I've eaten something, I've partaken in something, and now I feel Satisfied. And it's at this particular stage that I'd like to point out once again. We've talked about this a little bit, but this seems to be glaring to me. That in these Beatitudes that we've been talking about over the last couple weeks, there is a real sense of paradox. This doesn't seem to make sense. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two things that seem to be very, very opposite but yet are true together. This one is, of course, very uh, confusing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there's this weird paradox between the two. Blessed are those who are meek, but then they're going to actually have an inheritance as a result of their meekness. And here we come to yet another one of those paradoxes. Blessed are those, or happy are those, who hunger and thirst, who have this aching desire, yearning, striving, something within you that needs to be fulfilled, for you will be satisfied. So there's something very paradoxical and weird that I'm suggesting is going on in this passage. And what ties both of those things together is going to be this word, righteousness. Hunger is desire, satisfaction is being filled or fulfilled the two opposite ends. And right smack dab in the middle is this word, righteousness. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for this. And if you are hungering, yearning, desiring, aching, striving, reaching for this, you will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. So, What does this word righteousness mean? Traditionally, when, uh, for, for myself personally, I'm sure for many of you, the idea of righteousness has a connotation and a definition of personal piety, personal holiness, or personal morality. The thing that you do or should not do that is what it means to be righteous. And all of those words that we read in Romans and the rest of the Bible where this word righteousness comes up, uh, we actually have that in our vocabulary. You kind of consider yourself more holier than thou or more righteous than the, another person. It's the idea that something about my morality, my discipline, my piety, my particular holiness, as upright or better than or more significant than what it once was or from somebody else. Now, there is some truth to the idea that righteousness is personal piety, holiness, and morality. We have a part to play in how we act. But the problem that I'm going to suggest that we have is that when we only think about it as our personal piety, whether or not you're doing right or wrong, which often includes the finger that's pointed at you, which often includes shame and guilt and, uh-uh, I uh-uh, can't believe you did this. The problem that I have is this is really only half of the equation, and just like if you were to build a bridge halfway across a chasm, it's not a bridge. And what we need to do is take this word righteousness and dig a little deeper into what it used to mean, what it, how it was used and how it was leveraged, and how it got translated down through the ages to mean righteousness and the connotations that we've inherited. And it all stems and is rooted in this word tzedakah. Everybody say tzedakah. Tzedakah. Now tzedakah or tzedakah is sometimes how some people say it today means a whole bunch of things. When you do the study when you see how it's popped up in Leviticus and Numbers and a ton in Psalms and in Proverbs and Isaiah especially you see that righteousness has this definition not of your own personal piety but of what is supposed to be right in this world. There is something in this world that is not acting or behaving appropriately. It's not functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning, and people are suffering as a result of that dysfunction. We need righteousness. So you'll see this phrase as justice you'll see this phrase translated as it being right sometimes you'll see this phrase translated as vindication that some sort of wrong has been done to you and the victim somehow gets vindicated they finally get back what it is that they lost or they get the justice that is so due to them sometimes you'll see this word translated as saving help tzedakah, or righteousness, is that somebody has come and saved me. I've been suffering, I've been down, I've been ostracized, I've been um, a a victim of all sorts of injustice, and somebody has come along and provided righteousness, tzedakah, saving help. Uh, Sometimes it's translated the word victory, to the idea of overcoming, the idea of supplanting. For those of you who have ever been generous or uh, giving to Mr. Tony, our barista out there, there's a little box out there that I don't know if you've noticed. It's actually, we call it a little joy box. It's actually a tzedakah box. It was a gift given to us by Etz Chaim, and it says, kofet tzedakah. You can see, uh, even if you don't read Hebrew, you can see it's the same word there. This translation means Charity. The idea that you recognize that there's somebody in need. If you go to Israel with us, you'll see tzedakah boxes all over the place where people are asking for alms for the poor. If you've ever been to Home Depot in December, you know what a tzedakah box is. It's round and red and has a red shield on it with somebody ringing a bell. The Salvation Army. That is tzedakah or tzedakah, righteousness. Something is wrong. Somebody is poor. Some justice has not been experienced in this world. And we need it to be experienced. Um, And here's a little bit of how important it is. 49 times in the Psalms, 25 times in Isaiah. And this theme of tzedakah or righteousness shows up as one of the prominent themes in the Bible. And it is not primarily about you did wrong. Shame on you. Oh, I I know what you did late at night. You shouldn't have been doing that. Uh, You made a bad decision. You were lying. You cheated. You stole. It's not primarily about pointing the finger at you for the things that you've done. Now, again, we're going to get to why it's important that you do pay attention to that. But, I, man, my heart gets burdened when I see these terms, these words that have huge, massive, explosive, cosmic definitions and huge implications for our world narrowed down to shame on you. And I really hate it when that happens. Here's a couple examples of how this word tzedakah, and there's obviously dozens of them that we could use. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face when I awake. I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. That's the NIV translation. Here's the NRSV, same verse. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. You, God, have seen me and my suffering. You, God, have seen me in my injustice, and I will behold you. When I awake, I shall be satisfied, beholding your likeness. And once again, it sounds like Jesus is quoting these exact verses. In Isaiah chapter 5, for those of you who've been to Israel with us, this is a familiar verse. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, there's this uh, amazing passage where God compares his people to a vineyard. And a vineyard is supposed to produce good fruit, healthy, plump, luscious, satisfying fruit that is supposed to be nourishing for the people. But yet, the people are not doing what it is that they're supposed to be doing, doing. In fact, they're doing the exact opposite. And here's what he says as a prophecy against his people. The vineyard of the Lord, which is his people... The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. Now, check out this verse. And he looked for justice, and he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, tzedakah, the idea that there's right in this world, vindication in this world, justice in this world, but he heard cries of distress. And for those of you who are interested, the reason why those words are highlighted is because in the Hebrew, the words are so close together, they sound very similar. And he looked for mishpat, but he only saw mishpach. And it's almost as if they're just slightly different, but that slight difference makes a world of difference whether or not it's justice or bloodshed. He looked for tzedakah, righteousness, but he heard cries of tzedakah, outcry distress. Now, to complicate things even more, that this word righteousness, at least that we have inherited, isn't just what you have done and what you've done wrong. There's another problem that exists between the language of Hebrew and Greek, and also the language that is translated from then Greek to English. And here's the problem. There are two words in this passage, mishpat and tzedakah. But once you get to the Greek... Uh, most scholars have suggested there isn't a similar word for the word justice and a different word for the word righteousness. So it is both of those terms that are translated into the Greek dikaiosune, which means righteousness. In other words, when you take a look at the Old Testament and you see these words justice and you see these words righteousness, and you try to translate that into the receptor language of Greek, and you really only have one word that means both of those, you're only stuck with that one word. And so everywhere we see the word, therefore, righteousness, what we have to stop and think about and consider is the word righteousness actually pulls with it the full definition of justice and righteousness and vindication, and what is right in the world, and the idea that there should be something that is proper function in this world. So when we read the word righteousness, even in, throughout the rest of your New Testament, I'm going to encourage you, every time you see that word, consider carefully. It is not just what you personally have to get right. It is about what is also right in the world. And this is the other half of the definition. That there is both a part that you and I play by how we act, by how we behave. But it is because and also there's this bigger movement in the biblical narrative in the scriptures that God is attempting to put the entire world back in place. And you play a part in that role. And I hope simply just that in and of itself helps to remove from you, or at least begin to remove from you, a small sense of the shame and condemnation that has come whenever we hear the word righteousness or holiness. You have a part to play in this grand scheme, and that is the context for why we want to get our lives right. Here's a couple examples. Do you need to be a good driver? Yes. Yes, You have a role and responsibility to play. But it is because there is a grand scheme for how we need to operate and transport ourselves in the broader world. Is it important for you to take care of what it is that you watch? Yes. But it is also important for we as a people to ask some serious questions. What needs to be aired. What should we actually put out into the world? And that is a global conversation. And this in and of itself, whenever I hear this debate, I feel this tension of righteousness. I feel this tension of both people who are putting material out have a responsibility for the global society, but they say, but people can just choose what it is that they want to watch. Exactly. And we have the will and the right and the choice to decide what it is that we are going to consume. But that doesn't mean that you also don't have a responsibility to the global society. Should we obey the laws? Yes, we should obey the laws. They are there for order. They are there for making sure that life is functioning the way it should be. But is there also a time When you recognize that the laws themselves have got to go. This, my friends, is the global, the huge, the explosive definition of this word righteousness. That we recognize that there are some things in this world that have to change. And I want to start changing what's in me because I want to be a part of that change in the world. Are you with me? Now, This word righteousness shows up three times in this Matthew passage in Matthew chapter 5. Here are the other two. With this definition, consider carefully what these words might actually now mean. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if that righteousness is just about personal piety, then we can kind of feel like martyrs ourselves. But could it also be? Blessed are you who are persecuted. Because you are pushing hard on the world to make something right. That means it's going to upset the people who are in power. It's going to challenge the people who are trying to make sure that the status quo stays. Blessed are you because you're pursuing that kind of world-changing movement. And people are going to put up a fight. They don't want that. Here's another possibility. Chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've traditionally read that by righteousness, Pharisees? I mean, these are the people that they are ultimately pious. These are the people that have everything together. These are the people that have dotted all of their I's, crossed all their T's when it comes to personal piety and holiness. And Jesus says, my righteousness has to surpass them. But in this new definition, what kind of world? changing, putting to right, changing the structures of this world are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law doing. And if you read carefully what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees, he's railing them because they've made their personal piety more important than justice and compassion and mercy in this world. So your righteousness absolutely can surpass those of the Pharisees. Why? Because they're just about personal piety, and you, as followers of Jesus, say, there's something in this world that is not right, and it's got to be put to rights, and I'm going to pursue that. That righteousness can exceed those who are around us all the time, who are religious Pharisees, teachers of the law. So, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness— are like Stacy and Lauren, who see something in the world and say, that shouldn't be. And I have a desire now, now that I've seen that, something up within me says, I yearn, strive, I ache for putting that to rights. Happy are you. All of you. Who are hungering, desiring, and thirsting for this kind of righteousness, vindication, justice, putting the world back the way God intended it. It could be considered the gospel according to Popeye. That's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. Sometimes thinking about this hungry is the opposite. The opposite of hunger is slothfulness, the idea that I just don't care about it anymore. I just, I'm really not really interested. I just, okay, that's fine. These are not people that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Many of you have heard of atheism. Have you ever heard the word apatheism? The idea that I just don't care. Patrick Lencioni has written a new book uh, entitled The Ideal Team Player, and in his book, he highlights three things that make for an ideal team player, and one of them is the word hungry. Now, this is not somebody who is just like, I-, I need a bite heat. He uses this definition in this exact same way. Somebody who can't stop desiring, searching after, yearning for more. More of what makes the organization better. More of what adds value to the organization. More of how I can be better so that I can add to the organization. And finally, we could call this the theology of Rhino from the movie Bolt. I can be a valuable addition to your team. I'm listening. I'm lightning quick. I have razor-sharp reflexes. And I'm a master of stealth. <laughs> Plus, I'll keep the cat in check. The road will be rough. I have a ball. There's no turning back. Guess I'll have to roll with the punches. Easy won't be part of the equation. Promise. Gotta warn you, going into the belly of the beast, danger at every turn. I eat danger for breakfast. You hungry? Starving. I love that clip. I love that clip. I can't wait to get in there happy are you who hunger and thirst for that righteousness. When you see something and you can't wait to get in there because that has got to change. So what makes you hungry? I've shared with some of you before, one of the things that makes me hungry is dysfunctional organizations. When I see bad leaders, when I see Organizations, churches, nonprofits make horrible decisions, and the mission that is wonderful that they should be pursuing gets just sent off to the side and they're not able to accomplish it. That makes me hungry. This is why I started pursuing education, started reading, seeing if I can add value to that. Uh, some of you have heard, we've had this conversation before, that Danielle, when we were talking about the five values of Spark, one of the things that makes her hungry, bad. Teaching about God, where God's reputation is ruined and spoiled. It's all I can stands and I can't stands no more. Makes her hungry. Thirst. We've got to create a church in which a different kind of teaching and a different reputation of God must be put forth. What makes you hungry? Some of you have been involved with how waste, and especially electronic waste, is possibly causing damage to our environment as well as to other populations. And you see that and go, something about that needs to be done. We've already talked about the war in Syria. And you look at that and you see that and something within you rises up and says, that should not be. Blessed, happy are you because you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. When you see injustice and laws and racism and hate and something within you says, no, that can't be. Happy are you because you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I make no apologies for showing you this next image because this was the image. Remember where people kind of heard about this thing? They, 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 okay, there's something going on in Syria and somebody decides to publish this image and all of a sudden what happened? The entire world started hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we should never stop hungering and thirsting for that kind of righteousness. We should constantly put those images back, and we don't ever want to. Why? Because happy, blessed are those of us who hunger and thirst for this righteousness. I was getting ready for this message today. Izzy, who's um, been a part of SPARK, and some of you know Josh, sent me an email, and she had no idea what I was talking about today. And I asked her, can I share your email with in the message today? And here's what she wrote. I just got a chance to listen to your sermon from last week on Blessed Are The Meek, and I had a question. What if you identify more with the oppressor than the oppressed? And if you remember, last week I talked about the, the meek. The word anav is the person who has been made low, the person who has been oppressed. There have been moments in my life when I was definitely anav, the oppressed, Some of them, not that long ago. But I've been thinking about how the United States is this huge symbol and culture of power. And lately, I've felt more like the one contributing to the ANAV than the one experiencing it. For example, I went home for my sister's graduation from our 60% Latino high school. And as I sat there, I watched as a handful of Latino families arrived late and had to crowd the doors of the gym and stand in the back of the room for a long ceremony that they couldn't linguistically understand. I've also been listening to the series you guys did on sexual identity in the church, and I want so badly to help reverse and address the pain the church has caused in this community and others while I simultaneously figure out what I believe about it all. This is why she's a great sparker, right? Finally, my professor was telling us about the mines in Papua, and on and off I followed... Uh, some of the tragedies that take place in the mines in Africa. And something that's always buzzed in the back of my mind is the idea that if when I get married, our rings will likely be products of this abusive system, but we're supposed to wear them as symbols of love and fidelity, and that seems really wrong to me. I keep running into things like this where I feel a deep sense of injustice in regards to the actions of societies and cultures that I am a part of. But I don't know what to do. When I need new clothes, I can buy fair trade. I can write my high school and tell them that they should rethink the way they run some of their events. I can enter into dialogue with the church and ostracized communities. But something in your sermon made me wonder—something your sermon made me wonder was— How does the oppressor get into the kingdom? What a brilliant email. Here's my response to Izzy. Happy is Izzy who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness for she will be filled. You found your purpose. You found something within you that is going to drive you you found something worth fighting for, something of beautiful value. And yes, we are all oppressors at some particular point in our time, but something of those images, of those experience has caused within you a hunger. Why? There's tons of people in this world that look at those images and don't care. Have those experiences and and blame individuals and say, well, but at least I got mine. Happy is Izzy who hungers and thirsts for this righteousness, you're filled. You are now satisfied because you can't not pursue this. And I offer that to you as well. And if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you too are a part of this kingdom. And you too will be filled. Father God, help us to understand more and more the depths of this righteousness that you so desire in us and in the world. I pray that if there's anybody listening that has a desire, a yearning, a hope, and an ache in their hearts and are wondering what to do, may they hear from you, happy, blessed are you because you are hungry and thirsting for this kind of righteousness in the world. Thank you for Spark. Thank you so much for these friends, these brothers and sisters who are attempting to do this in this world. May we submit all of our desires, all of our hunger, all of our yearnings to you. We pray in your name. And everybody said, Amen.